0: Since August, my sermons have been focused on relationships, marriage, singleness, sexuality. And today, the subject of the sermon is homosexuality. Now, the structure of my sermon is simple. Three parts. First, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Second, what are some of the objections... The kind of common objections that we experience today in our culture with regard to the biblical teaching, the very clear teaching on this subject. And third, how do we put this teaching into practice facing issues that were not faced necessarily when the Bible was written? So, first of all, what does the Bible say? Well, let me just say up front the Bible hardly ever talks about homosexuality. It's a minor point in the Bible. It comes up about a dozen times. And considering how many times other things come up, that's not a lot. But when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it always says the same thing it's a sin. And so I'm going to just walk through these passages. Now, I realize that if you're here, it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You might not be a Christian. And you might not agree with the Bible. But part of what it means to be a decent human is that we treat others with respect. Even when the other is a book. And it is wrong to do violence to other people. And it's wrong, ethically wrong, to do violence to books. To twist a person or an object into your own making is not something that we should do. So, I'm not assuming you agree with me, but I am going to just walk through what this very old document says. The first thing that the Bible says, the first time homosexuality comes up in the Bible is Genesis chapter 19. So, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Genesis chapter 19... It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we're not going to read it, um, but you can turn there and hold it in your hand. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. Homosexuality is not the point of this passage. It's not the main problem of the city of Sodom. The fundamental sin of Sodom that demonstrates their great wickedness, that results in God destroying the city, is that they disregard the needs of vulnerable people. Now, if you could read Genesis 19 through the eyes of the culture in which it was written and which first read it, you would know that. But even if you didn't, if you just read the whole Bible, you'll come across a passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where the latter part of the Bible is reflecting on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, it names the wickedness of Sodom. And it is not sodomy. That's where our word comes from. It's not homosexuality. It's this thing I've talked about. Listen to Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her brothers had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now, the Bible does explain Sodom's sodomy as sin. But it is not the main point of the passage. In fact, it's, it, it's a problem when Christians try to develop a whole doctrine about homosexuality off of this story for that reason. Now, this story does have something to contribute to the subject, but it doesn't contribute a flat-out condemnation of homosexuality. It's an implication of the passage, but it's not the overt on-the-surface primary teaching of the passage. Turn a few pages to the right. This time we'll actually read it to the book of Leviticus. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And the third book of the Bible is Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. Now at this point, we've turned from narrative to law. From story ...to judicial code. So it's a different genre. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Two chapters to the right. Chapter 20 verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A couple of things here. The cultures that surrounded Israel at the time this was written and read. Right? The cultures that surrounded Israel at this time did not have a problem with homosexuality. The law code of Assyria. This was during the middle Assyrian time period. It clearly indicates that homosexual rape was punishable, but there was nothing wrong with homosexual acts between consenting adults. The Egyptians, these are other neighbors at the, at this time, they banned homosexual intercourse between adults and children, but other than that, it was accepted. And it appears, and this appears to be pretty consistent with the other cultures, the Hittites, the Canaanites. A few centuries later, after Alexander the Great swept through this part of the world in the Greek, classical Greek society, and then after that, in classical Roman society, in those cultures, they had no problem with homosexuality, even homosexual activity between adults and children, if it was in the context of a continuing educational relationship, just read Plato. So the ancient Near East was a world in which the practice of homosexuality in every form that we have today, consensual, non-consensual Adults, 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 children. All of that was here. It was a part of life. It was well known. And each culture, um, other than the Greco-Roman culture, had an aspect of it that they condemned. But on the whole, accepted it. But the Bible is different. Why? See, this this is a question you've got to ask. Why? I mean, there was a lot of things that, that the Israelites copied from the surrounding cultures. Sacrifices to God. They didn't invent that. That was happening around. Now, they did something different with it, but there was lots of aspects of the surrounding cultures that Israel adopted. Some, they adapted, but this one, rejection. No exception No exclusion. In fact, one of the passages we just read, they they pronounce it an abomination. Which is one of the three or four strongest words in that culture for denouncing something that offends God. And secondly... They prescribe the death penalty for homosexual activities. That strange phrase, their blood is on their head. It meant somebody in this culture, they will clearly know the rule here. And when they break it, they will break it in full knowledge. And therefore, their blood is on their head. It doesn't prescribe this rule for those outside of Israel. It's for those raised within this culture. Now, it it does have the exceptions when someone is raped. Just like it does with other sins. In fact, the Bible, in this part of Scripture, if we were to read the whole paragraph in Leviticus 20, the death penalty is prescribed for several sexual transgressions. Homosexuality, adultery, incest, and bestiality. Those things are all put in the same category... As deserving, the condemnation of, it's an abomination, and the punishment of death. Now, the next four passages in the Old Testament that deal with homosexuality are all dealing with the specific case of homosexual prostitutes. Because this was quite a common theme at certain types of religious temples. There are male prostitutes and female prostitutes. And so in, we're not going to read these passages, but in Deuteronomy 23, 17, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 12, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 46, and 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 7, all of those passages deal with that issue, homosexual prostitution. All of them condemn it. Now, in a very quick survey, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well... The New Testament adopts that view. Never changes it. It adopts it wholesale without any nuancing of it, without any exceptions. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is such a complex issue in our society. I wish that we had time in our service um, for Q&A. I would love to do that. The only reason we're not going to do it is because of time. Um, but look, if I'm flying over stuff that you would love to talk about, please just call me, um, email me. My, my phone number, my email are on the back of the worship guide. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. If you're familiar with some of the current debate about um, homosexual, um, the way the New Testament handles homosexuality, that's actually a kind of a convergence of two words that are notoriously difficult to translate. Um, Malakoi and Arsenicati. Orsine, Um, Your Bible might have translated them slightly differently like uh, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship and the aggressive partner in a homosexual relationship. But there really isn't any debate that it's talking about homosexual um, behaviors. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not thieves, nor the greedy, nor dr- drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now look over um, a couple of pages to the right if you're looking in your Bible. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. um, This is uh, a slave dealer, somebody who buys humans and sells them. Liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, With which I have been trusted. Now, these passages, they're just taking words. Look, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. At the time the New Testament was being written, they were reading a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. And these very tricky words to translate that a lot of scholars are sitting around arguing about, they're actually lifted right out. Of the Greek translation of those Old Testament passages we read. It's just referring. It's just picking up the sexual commands of the Old Testament. And bringing them straight into the New Testament. Without explaining. Without unpacking them. Um, In fact this word or synekati. That's so difficult to translate. Is really a phrase in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's just been contracted together. Men who lie with men. Now. This is what the New Testament does. It doesn't it doesn't it assumes the teaching from the Old Testament. Now, the most important passage in the New Testament with regard to this is Romans, the passage that Russell read to us, Romans chapter 1. It's the most important passage in the New Testament dealing with homosexuality, and it's definitely the most complex. What's going on in Romans chapter 1, this passage that we heard read to us earlier, is And this is, if you get this in your mind, it helps untangle the passage. Paul, who's writing the passage, is diagnosing the human condition. He's, He's a doctor, and he's doing a diagnosis. And his central claim is that the entire human race is unrighteous. Jew and Gentile. And the reason they're unrighteous... This is really important. It's because they refuse to honor God and give him thanks. Because they refuse to honor and worship God, they are unrighteous. Now, as a result of that, if you were listening close when it was being read earlier, it talks about that. And then it says, therefore, as a result of not honoring the creator, humanity, the human race... God gives us over to the broken desires of our hearts. And one of those is homosexuality. So in this passage, homosexuality is not particularly sinful. It is particularly illustrative. In this passage, homosexual behavior is not the worst thing a human can do. There are far worse things that humans do than what they do sexually. It's just that in that context, the point Paul was making was uniquely illustrated by homosexual behavior. So what I'm saying is that in this passage, homosexual behavior does not provoke the wrath of God, it is a consequence of God giving us up in his wrath to the desires of our heart. All of the various sins listed in this passage are symptoms. And the underlying problem is that the human race has turned away from God. Now, a very important issue is why. Why does homosexuality keep getting listed as a sin? Why does God disapprove of homosexuality? Why is it so uniquely illustrative of what it looks like for humans to turn away from God? Now that's a massively important issue that I can't do this morning. In fact, all week I was trying to find a way to answer that question. I think that that is one of the most important questions the church is facing and Christians are facing. Why? What's wrong with it? And there, so some Christians would respond, well, the Bible says so. But a really important response to that is, why? Why does the Bible say, this? is this just an arbitrary rule that some like, fun monger up in the sky decided to lay out there? We don't have time to go into this, and I wish that we did. But when you're reading what is said here in Romans 1... Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is in the backdrop. And the reason that homosexuality is a sin is because it breaks the order of creation. God God designed humans to work in a particular way and homosexual actions do not follow that design. Now, you might not agree with that. But you just have to have the integrity... To admit you're disagreeing with Scripture, which for some people is no problem. I'm not saying you have to believe that, but that's the claim Scripture's making. Now, with that, you can decide. Well, the Bible says X, and I would say Y. I just disagree. That's okay, but what I'm trying to do in this message is just make a very simple point here. The Bible disapproves of it. That's all I'm trying to do. That's where we have to start. Now, the next question is, why does the Bible disapprove of it? That will have to be another discussion, another time. If you want to talk about that, please give me a call. Let's have coffee. But for now, the simple point. The Bible offers no loopholes, no exceptions. Gay sex in any form is prohibited. Now, despite the best efforts of some recent interpreters to explain away the evidence, the Bible is unambiguous. It is absolute in its condemnation. Now, at this point, this is where I would have delved into precisely how it goes against the orders of creation. But instead, what I'm going to do is shift gears into the second part of my message. Some common objections. First of all, Some people say that when the Bible condemns homosexual behavior, it's only talking about homosexual violence. So they go to passages like Genesis chapter 19 and say the problem there is not homosexuality per se. It's the violent homosexual gang rape of two people. So, um, because that is what's going on in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they read passages like Romans and they say what's going on here is that he's talking about going against your nature. And if your nature is to be homosexual, you're going against your nature by not being homosexual. Or that somehow the Bible is condemning pedophilia. But that nowhere in the Bible, this argument goes, does does God rule out mutual, loving, monogamous, long-term, consensual between adults... Homosexual relationships. That's just not true. That's the kind of argument, no offense, that is often made in college classes among people who are not reading the Bible and making claims about the Bible. And let me just say, in all due respect, don't talk about me if you haven't talked with me, and don't talk about the Bible if you haven't read it. That's just rude. That's not academic integrity. That's not intellectually honest. And we all have this habit, by the way, of making these kind of pronouncements. Republicans do it about the Democrats all the time. Democrats do it about the Republicans all the time. We live in a culture of sound bites. The Bible is very complex. And it, and it never, ever condones mutual Consensual homosexual sex. There's a lot of that soundbite in our culture, but the Bible just doesn't do that. Now, if you think it does, and if you let's sit down and talk about it, but the the, part of the argument that this is made on is the idea that we know things today they didn't know then, and to which I will answer just read Plato, read the symposium. Read the accounts from the early Roman Empire and you will see that the full range of homosexual activity was there. Consensual and non-consensual. Long-term love affairs between mature, stable adults and violent rape. It was all there. They, we, we are not recently arrived. This is a lie in our culture. That up until now, everything's been suppressed. <laughs> Read history. History is not the shining light of suppression. It's not the case. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was a lot of that going on in Paul's day. But it was by no means the only thing. It's just not true to say that the Bible was a different context than ours. And our situation on this issue is different. A second objection. Some people say, doesn't Jesus preach tolerance and acceptance? And so then we read Jesus against Paul, to which I will say, read Jesus. He did preach tolerance and acceptance. And within a few breaths, he would also condemn This, again, is the kind of argument made by people who are not giving the Bible a fair chance. He welcomed sinners and outcasts, yes. He found people on the margins and yes, he brought them in. Yes, at the center of the gospel is this idea that you are accepted as you are. That God loves you as you are. Again, there's more to it than that. Read the account of Jesus' life. It will simply not do to say that he advocates tolerance and then leaves it at that. There are many passages in which Jesus is radically intolerant of all kinds of behavior. In In fact... When it comes to sexual morality, not for one moment does any part of the Bible or any moment that Jesus is dealing with sexuality, not for one moment does he allow the assumed Judeo Christian sexual ethic to be flexible. He is inflexible on that, just like he's inflexible on murder. A third common injection. To the prohibition against homosexual behavior goes like this. If I don't have a choice, it's not fair to condemn me. Now this gets right at the heart of some major movements within our culture today. Let me make two points. First, most of us know that there is a large body of of modern psychological and scientific work on this issue of homosexuality, nature, or nurture. Are people born gay? Is there a gay gene? Um, Are they socialized into homosexuality? And to be frank, it doesn't matter. Not one single minute thing the Bible has to say about sexual ethics is changed if people are born gay. That doesn't matter. Even if it could be proven, and it hasn't been proven that people can be born gay. I know the twin study, I know the chromosome study, but none of that has been conclusively proven. In fact, most of that by most of the scientific community has been dismissed. Now that doesn't, it hasn't been proven yet, but even if it could be proven, it doesn't matter. Look, no one is going to argue that every inborn trait is good. Are we really going to go there? That if you're born that way, it's okay. That makes no argument for no ethic. I was born angry. And when I was 15, I got a shotgun and was about six feet away from shooting a guy when my brother stopped me by grabbing the gun. If I had said to the judge, I'm sorry... I've always had a bad temper. I was born with it. That would in no way change the scenario. Inborn traits, genetic or not, doesn't mean they're automatically, now in some cases it does, but it doesn't mean they are automatically good. Let me give you an analogy. Alcoholism. Alcoholism. Now, it's not a perfect analogy to this situation, but let's just think about it together. There is a considerable body of evidence that suggests some people are born with a predisposition toward alcoholism. Now, it's not conclusive, but it's generally agreed upon in our society. And that these people, once exposed to alcohol, they experience an attraction so powerful that it cannot be counteracted except through careful counseling, intense community engagement, we call that AA, and total abstinence. Now, our culture agrees on that, by and large. That there are people for whom alcohol, once they've tasted it, the only way to survive is through counseling, intense community support through something like AA, and absolute, total, complete abstinence. Look, I've got very good friends. One of my closest friends was an on-the-street... In the gutter alcoholic for 10 years of his life, he has no memory of a decade of his life. He says to me, Aubrey, if I touch alcohol, put a gun to my head because it's over. I'm dead. There is no turning back. And we pretty much recognize that in our culture today, that that's how it is with some people. We... We often talk about alcoholism as a disease. In fact, yeah. we carefully distinguish our disapproval of that behavior from our love of the person. We do this with alcoholism today. We carefully have developed a nuanced language in the American society... For how we can love the alcoholic and hate with all of our guts the alcoholism. I'm suggesting that that's a helpful analogy for homosexual behavior. That you can be born with a deep, innate, irresistible attraction. Two, fill in the blank. Alcohol? Losing your temper? Same-sex erotic behavior? That's, That's what I'm suggesting now. I know that in all kinds of ways, this is not fun for us to think like this. Which, by the way, is what people 80 years ago would have said about alcoholism. And I'm suggesting we can learn from that issue. Now, a second point on, on this issue of it's not fair if I was born that way. A second point is this. We are great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment. And as a result, we think that we are free moral agents and that we choose rationally and freely between options. But Scripture says that's wrong. Scripture unmasked the illusion ...that we are free in our choices. Scripture teaches us that we are so deeply infected... ...by the tendency of self-deception. One of my favorite passages, Jeremiah says... ...the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. The Bible claims that we are profoundly self-deceived... And one of the teachings in our passage from Romans 1 is that the human, rate, the human race is in a state of self-affirming confusion on sexual issues. Listen again to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to, be die, deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Look, what this is saying is that once the human race entered the fall, entered the fallen state, we are no longer, not any one of us, none of us, are no longer free. We are all slaves to sin. None of us makes free moral choices. We are all enslaved. And because of this, our perception is wrong. Our will is weakened. And we are incapable, Romans 7 says, of obeying God's commandments. So the Bible claims that we are held accountable for things we're not capable of doing. Now, I know, that, and what I'm trying to say to you is that is difficult for the great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment to swallow no matter how long you've been in the church. But Romans 1 says he gave them over. He gave them over three times. He gave them over. Romans 6, Romans 7, over and over it says the, the idea that you can make a free choice is a myth. Therefore, the idea that Being condemned for something you had no choice of is unfair. The Bible just owns up to it. It recognizes that. But then if you keep reading in Romans, after chapter 1, after the diagnosis, you know what he begins to do? He begins to lay forth what salvation is. And you know what salvation is in Romans? It is redemption. You know what redemption is? Freedom from slavery. God liberating and setting us free from the power of sin and placing us within the sphere of His righteousness. You see, the Bible has a very sober anthropology and it rejects something that we think is common sense. The Bible says it's wrong. It's common sense to us because we're children of the Enlightenment, great-grandchildren. But it is, the Bible says even though it makes sense to us, even though it seems right to us, it's a function of our broken minds. It's this. That only freely chosen acts are morally culpable. The Bible says that's not right. Even things you have no control over, you're held responsible for. See, this is the very claim of the fall is that when humans sin, humans became enslaved to sin. They were darkened. The very nature of sin is that it is not freely chosen. That's what it means in the, in the New Testament, to live in the flesh. We're in bondage to sin, but still accountable to God's righteous judgment of our actions. And what I'm saying is, to the degree that you don't like that, to that degree you're a child of the Enlightenment. And many other cultures and many other points in times, that was no problem. That's a historical Reality To us today Now again I'm giving away a thousand hostages And if you want to talk about how that can be the case How can we be responsible for something We did not choose Let's talk But there's so much ground to cover I can't answer every question But I can say to you I would love to have the conversation This is something that desperately needs to be talked about Between passionate but reasonable people In our culture today So just to sum that issue up from the perspective of the Bible, it cannot be maintained that a homosexual orientation is morally neutral because it is genetic or involuntary. Now, you might disagree with that. I'm just trying to lay out what the Bible teaches on this. Now, for the last portion of the message, I want to answer three, ask and answer three questions to help us say, okay, how do we work this out with some of the issues we're facing today? Number one. In light of what the Bible says about homosexuality and homosexual behavior, should the church support civil rights for homosexuals? The answer is absolutely yes. No exception. Love your neighbor. And when you don't love your neighbor, repent. Love your neighbor. It doesn't qualify only your straight neighbor. It doesn't qualify only your Christian neighbor. Love your neighbor. No matter what they do or you disagree with, love them. This is at the heart of Christianity. And part of loving them means advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves. Now, that's not currently the case with the homosexual population in America. They have actually quite a robust advocacy. But that doesn't mean you don't wrecking. And look, there's lots of issues going on in our society that require lots of deep thought. Where are you advocating and where are you crossing the line? But should we support civil rights for homosexual people... Absolutely, we must love and serve and sacrifice ourselves in order to bless other people no matter their belief, no matter their ethnicity, and no matter their sexual orientation. We must defend and advocate for the fair treatment of all people. The cross is the model for this. Aren't you glad that Jesus died on the cross for everyone, not just those who liked him? Not just those who were living as they should. The cross is the model and you know what it models for us? It's a model that says to us, the church must respond to the plight of the homosexual. Not in condemnation, but in sacrificial service and love. Second question, can a homosexual person be a member of the church? Again, the answer is obviously yes. Absolutely. I mean, where are we going to draw the line? Can a greedy person be a member of the church? Can a person who lusts be a member of the church? What about those of you who struggle with pride? This idea that a homosexual can't be the member of the church, that's just middle class morality. That's just you making your ranking. And because of your own innate grossness to it, you've put it in a certain order. No. Don't do that because the moment you do that, you protect yourself. Right? Rich, greedy jerks can be in the church, but not gay people. Now, you see, the Bible teaches over and over that the church is filled with saints and sinners. And that's every person. Every one of us has saintliness in us. And sinfulness in us. We've got to acknowledge that people with homosexual desires, some who have that desire just at one point in time and others who who have had that desire as long as they can, they're already members of the church. And if they're not welcome, I'll have to walk out the door along with them. Because it wouldn't take you very long to do the witch hunt for me and find out what stuff in my life doesn't rank up on your list of middle class morality. Number three, should a homosexual Christian expect to change their orientation? This is a tough question. On the one hand, the transforming power of the Spirit of God is available to us today. The cross... Romans says, marks the end of the old life and the power of sin. On the cross, Jesus was not just modeling sacrificial love. He was changing the fabric of reality and breaking the kingdom of darkness and shattering the power of sin. It happened. It's real. Therefore, no one in Christ is locked into the past or into a psychological or biological determinism. Listen to Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Romans 6:12. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as right as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law. This is what the Bible teaches about the real effect of the work of Christ on the cross. So you see in Romans 1, Paul diagnoses the human race as sinful... But after that, he lays out the gospel of grace. God's rich, welcoming, and forgiving love. Meeting us where we we are, even when we're helplessly bound to our genes, our proclivities, our nurture, whatever it is. But then Paul says, when the gospel meets us in our sin." When God's grace meets us while we are sinners, it does not leave us there. God's grace meets us where we are, but God's grace does not leave us where we are. He accepts us where we are, but His grace transforms us. Paul clearly believed that the gospel is powerful enough to change your habits, choices, orientations on the other hand he also believed we don't all get all of that this side of the return of Christ because just a few pages later in Romans chapter 8, listen to what he says. All of creation groans in pain and bondage. And not only the creation but we ourselves who already have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies. If there was ever a passage that applies to the homosexual issue, it is that. That even Christians can be saved and yet groan for their bodies to not work against them. This means, among other things, that Christians set free from the power of sin through the death of Christ. Still struggle to live faithfully This side of the return of Christ. Who doesn't know that's not the case? Who among us cannot find something in their life over which you don't struggle? The redemption of our bodies remains a future hope. Final transformation of our fallen physical sexual lives awaits the resurrection. Those who demand fulfillment now and demand complete transformation now, people who do that as if it is a right or a guarantee are living in adolescent illusion. The transforming power of the Spirit really is present in our midst. On the other hand, we live with the reality Of temptation and the reality of the hard struggle to live faithfully. In this time between the times, some may find that disciplined abstinence is the only way you can live sexually. Perhaps there are many for whom the best outcome, this side of the return of Christ, is abstinence. Lifelong celibacy. By the way, the same thing applies to teenagers. Not lifelong, maybe. This, look, there is this idea in our society that we're asking homosexuals to give up their sex life is something we're not asking anybody else to do. No, I've just spent five weeks asking a lot of other people to do that. If you're not married, abstinence. If you used to be married and you grew used and accustomed and you loved your sex life and then your spouse died or you got divorced, guess what? Abstinence. There are plenty. Those of you who are struggling with homosexual desires, you are not unique. Join the crowd. Because there are singles in this room who cannot have sex. And get this, married people in this room, they also have to have sexual self-discipline to only engage in sex in a very prescribed way. All of us have the requirement laid on us of sexual discipline. All of us do. Now, I'll I'll close with this. If you are attracted to people of your own gender, first of all, don't draw your identity from your sexual orientation. Don't do that. You are more than your genitals. You are more than your sex drive. Do not let anybody, don't let the gay community and don't let the Christian community reduce you to what you do in bed. Or in a closet or wherever you do it. Don't, that is not who, you, your identity is far more than that. That is a dehumanizing of you. To reduce you to something like that. You're a human being. You are complex. You like My gay friends, they like movies. They like food. You know, they've got, they've got a whole life outside of their sexuality. When you look in the mirror, don't look in the mirror and only stare at your sexuality. It doesn't matter if you're heterosexual or homosexual. That's a problem. Never in the Bible does sexuality become the basis for defining a person's identity or for finding meaning or fulfillment. The things in the Bible that matter are justice and mercy and faith. Number two, if you struggle, if homosexual desires is something that you're going through, you always have, or maybe just recently, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to one of the many godly people in this church. You can't go through this alone. I mean, this is a fundamental insight of AA. You've got to bring other people in. Number three, if you've engaged in homosexual activity, repent. Ask forgiveness. Confess your wicked behavior to God. Now, I said the same thing last week to adulterers. And I've said the same thing in weeks before to people who lust. I mean, this is... Today we're talking about homosexuality. We started a whole service with this. It's the same thing you need to do if you haven't loved your neighbors yourself. Repent. The the Bible's answer to sin, all sin, has always been repent. Not beat yourself up over it. Just go to this God who is running towards you and confess it to him. And my final point is this. We live in the midst of a culture that worships self-gratification. And it doesn't matter if you're a homosexual or heterosexual, that will destroy you. We live in the midst of a church that preaches a false Jesus that panders to our desires. And we need celibate homosexuals in our church. Because their life will preach a prophetic word to us. That the way is narrow. Stop crying. And join the club. And I want to say to those who struggle with homosexuality, you're not the only one who's had to give up something. If I wanted to take the time now, I could share with you the things I've had to give up that I think are just as difficult as that. And we could go through this room and you could hear from person after person who has given up things that are unreal. That was the gospel reading. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You must give up the thing you love so much. It is your identity. Jesus has done that time and time again. He not, it is not unfair to homosexuals. He does that to heterosexuals. He does that to teenagers. He does that to married people. He does that to single people. He does it to priests. He does it to, to lay people. This is at the heart of the gospel. I know it's difficult. It is so brutal that when it came to the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and watched him walk away because he refused to do it. And Jesus will do the same for you. Yes, he loves. Yes, he's tolerant. Yes, he's accepting. But his call for you is to love him the most. And that means when he puts his finger on something in your life, you give it up. This is everybody. See, we've got a problem because we've allowed the cultural debate to say our sexuality defines who we are. And then if you have to give up that, you have to give up who you are. First of all, that's wrong. Your sexuality doesn't define who you are. And secondly, big whoop, the Bible calls you to give up what... The Bible calls you to give things up that are central to your identity all the time. This is Christianity. Now, I'm not saying you've got to agree with it. I'm just saying let's all please have the integrity to admit it. And for those of you who are as straight as a ruler, and for those of you who have never had a homosexual desire, when you talk to people who struggle with that, give them the love you want anybody to give you. Don't, when you're, when you're, look, some of you have been so, you're so middle class, you're so grossed out by this that's your problem and when you're talking to someone who struggles with any sin that is icky to you anyone you know what you've got to do when you feel the ick coming up inside you've got to stop yourself and say there's more to this person than that this is not that person and until you can do that you're a hypocrite repent 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 In Romans 1, homosexuality is not the worst. It's just the most illustrative. Now for all of us, the love of God tells us that there's a fate worse than abstinence. So for the singles, for the gays, for the widowed, for the divorcees, Our culture has conned you into believing the essence of who you are is who you are sexually. That is wrong. There is a fate worse than celibacy. And there is life and joy and fulfillment by celibates and by bunny rabbits. Jesus and Paul were celibate. The two greatest heroes in the Bible demonstrate to us you can have a full, human, satisfying, fulfilling life. Married or not. Sexually active or not. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.